because of Colossians, what we've just engaged in the last two weeks, the part of the attack in this fledgling church in Colossae was this group that came in that would later become known as the Gnostics, but this was before they got solidified. And all of these groups that come into churches and try to snatch people away from Christ, they always attack the person of Christ. Always. It, it, it's never without exception. Question 21 of our catechism says this, what kind of redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? That's a fair question, isn't it? So what, what does that redeemer look like? What does he have to be? And the answer is this, one who is truly human and also truly God. Now you notice, I think they got it right in that catechism, instead of using the word fully human, fully God, a more accurate term is truly human and truly God. And uh, I'm going to switch those around today, um, and there's a reason for that. I want to deal today with the fact that Jesus is truly God. So the title, I guess, of the sermon, and it's based off of Colossians, and we're going to use one, uh, a section of verses in Colossians 1. We're going to be all over the scripture today, so just get your Bibles ready. But um, it's just Jesus who is God revealed. Emmanuel, God with us, right? This is the concept here, if you will. So to start us off, we're going to actually look at the question 22 and 23 together in song. And that will come up here on the screen and we're going to listen to this. Very pretty song.
Amen? I fear that we don't understand this. I fear that we're not clear on what this actually means. Now, I'm going to flip them around, to, and if you'll let me do that, uh, I want to deal with this latter portion today. Why must the Redeemer be truly God? And you can see the answer up there. Because of His divine nature, His obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective, and also that He would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. There's a lot packed into there, isn't there? So let me unpack it today as best I can. And I'm going to start with some cursatory observations about who Jesus was based on testimony in his day. Let me begin with a quote from this fellow right here. This guy is named John Chrysostom. He's one of the early church fathers. And uh, here's, uh, here's what John Chrysostom had to say about Christ. He said this, Let no weed uh, for his iniquities, let no, one, let no one need for his iniquities for pardon has shone forth from the grave. Let no one fear death. For the Savior's death has set us free. Inasmuch as he was held captive by it, he hath annihilated it. Speaking of death, isn't that beautiful? By descending into hell, he made hell captive. He angered it when it tasted his flesh. And, and Isaiah, foretelling this, did cry, Hell, said he, was angered when it encountered thee. It was angered because it was abolished. It was angered because it was mocked. It was angered because it was slain. It was angered because it was fettered in chains. It took a body and beheld God face to face. Speaking of the body of Christ. It took earth and encountered heaven. It took that which was visible and fell upon the invisible. O death! Where is thy sting? O hell, where is thy victory? Christ is one, and thou art overthrown. Christ is risen, and the demons are fallen. Christ is risen, and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen, and Christ reigneth. Amen? And this early church father explains to us with clarity, and I love that line, it took a body, hell took a body, the grave took a body, and ended up beholding God face to face. So the question is this, was Jesus truly God? So here's some things to ponder by way of evidence. First of all, is that Jesus created and sustains the universe. Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. We read this this morning in our responsive reading. In the beginning was the Word... That's a reference to Christ himself, the Logos of God. And the Word was with God, and the Word was what? God. Pretty clear, right? Um, it goes on to say, the same was in the beginning with God, and all things were created by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. All things were created by this Christ, this Word from God. Matter of fact, and we know this specifically, it's not a play on words, 
Because God spoke the word and it, what? Appeared. Christ was part of that and parcel. He created and sustains the universe. We, we covered these verses um, a few weeks ago, uh, Brother Jay, uh, Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Look at this. For by him, this is Christ, how much was created? All things were created. Where? In heaven and on earth, both visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Then he goes on to say, all things were created. Look at this. Through him and what? For him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. So what do we see there? That everything that's created was created through who? Through Christ himself. All things were created through him. But not only was he the agent of creation, that everything had to flow through Christ in creation... Look at this. Also, all things were created what? For him. He's the purpose of creation. He's the beginning of creation, but he's also the end of creation. He's the reason for creation. And then it goes on to say, and he is before all things. He precedes creation. So it's very important to see this. He's, he precedes creation. And then this, and in him all things hold together. He keeps creation together. He keeps what he creates. Boy, there's a comfort in that today, isn't there? Um, what, a, what a beautiful truth that is. So Jesus creates and sustains the universe. And without Christ, the universe ceases to exist. Do we think about it that way? Could a mere man do that? No, and this is the testimony of Holy Scripture. Here's the next one. It's already up there. Jesus claimed to be God. He said, did he really? And this is argued and debated, and there's really no debate. I mean, he, ultimately, it was the reason he was put to death, because he wouldn't back off this claim. Um, John 5 and 58 gives us a window into this. And I'll give you a little bit of the context. The religious leaders, the Pharisees and scribes, are debating with Jesus. And they basically ask him the question, well, are you greater than our father Abraham? Because everything goes back to Abraham in, in, the, in, the, in the Jewish tradition. And they thought a lot of Abraham as well they should, right? He, Abraham was their guy, so to speak. So for us as, as people who are citizens of the United States, you know, George Washington would be our guy, right? Um, so th this is a loose comparison. And, and uh, so they're basically saying, so who do you think you are? Are you, you, are you greater than Abraham? And look, what, look how Jesus answers them. Jesus says to them, and he uses a double intensifier, truly, truly, or verily, verily. And in, and in that culture, what he's saying is, this, you could take this to the bank. What I'm fixing to tell you is absolute truth. Listen to me. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, what? I am. Now, those Jewish religious leaders knew exactly. That word, I am, was not a delineation of time. It's a play on words. That's a title. 
Notice he didn't say I was. That would be a delineation of time. He says what? I am. And that's a reference to back to the Old Testament that these guys would have been super familiar with. When God tells Moses, now you're ready. You've been herding sheep for 40 years and now you're a nobody. Now I can use you. Go back to Egypt and get my people. And Moses says, <laughs> right. And who am I supposed to tell these people sent me? And what did, what did God say? You tell them that I am has sent you. It's the name for Jehovah God. And what does Jesus say here? Hey, I've been around before Abraham because I am. So Jesus even owns that and, he, and tells the truth. Jesus was called God by others. Other people called him God. And remember, our, our big thing with Jesus is that he was sinless. He's the sinless son of God, right? And if he wasn't the sinless son of God, you and I are in big trouble today. Y'all recognize that? If he wasn't sinless, <laughs> you're in trouble with God. So we all, we all kind of bank everything on Jesus being sinless. So if he calls himself God, if he was wrong, then he sinned. If other people called him God, and he wasn't God, and he didn't correct them, then he what? Sinned. So you know this one, this first one, um, in the book of Matthew. Um, no, it's John. I'm sorry. John 20, 28. Remember this story about Thomas? And what do we know him as? Yeah. Doubting Thomas. That was not his nickname till later, after this. His nickname before then was Didymus, or the twin, because he had a twin. Um, apparently, now he, the twin was not a disciple, only Thomas was. So he was known as the twin until this. You remember what happened? Jesus shows up and Thomas isn't there. We, we don't know where he is, but he's out. He might have been at Chick-fil-A getting lunch for the guys. I don't know. <laughs> So wherever he is, he's not there. Jesus shows up, and, and of course, this is the first time the disciples see him, and they're amazed. He shows up in there, and then he, then he leaves, and, and he leaves, and who, who do you think shows up? Thomas. He's back with the Chick-fil-A sandwiches, right? And, and, and the disciples are all abuzz. Now, they're locked in the upper room because they're sure that the Romans are coming for them next, and they got a cross with their name on it. They're hiding, scared to death. That's how Thomas leaves them. When he comes back, they're all excited. And they said, Thomas, you're not going to believe this. Jesus was just here. And Thomas says, yeah, right. He's from Missouri. Anyone know the show, the show me state? That's right. He said, I believe it when I... And he says something pretty graphic. Uh, he said, unless I put my fingers in the holes and put my hand into his side... I won't, I, don't, I won't believe. How many of you know that God's timing is sometimes humorous? No sooner does he get those words out of his mouth and the Bible says Jesus appeared in their midst. Have you ever been caught like that? You said something stupid and you turn around and a person you, you're talking about standing behind you. <laughs> That's kind of, so I want you to take the Bible glasses off and picture this scene, right? And what does Jesus say? I, I think Jesus stands and shows him the wounds. He says, come on, put your fingers in here, stick your hand in my side. And, and it's really interesting the way Jesus 
words this and he says, stop being unbelieving. Stop your unbelieving. And instead, replace your unbelief with belief. And here's what you don't see. You don't see Thomas going over there and doing that. Even though there's some great artwork that depicts Thomas with his hand in the side of Jesus, that is not what historically happened. Instead, this historically happens. And Thomas answered and said to him, what? My Lord and my God. Now, Lord means master, but you know what God means. And Jesus doesn't correct him. He was called God by others. Um, and even by Paul in Titus 2 and 13. Look at what this says. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. And who is that? Jesus Christ. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So he's called God by others. Now this next picture, this fellow's name is J. Oswald Sanders. And J. Oswald Sanders wrote a great book called The Incomparable Christ the person and work of Jesus Christ. And here's what he says in there. I want you to hear these words. If Jesus is not God, then there is no Christianity. And we who worship him are nothing more than idolaters. It's pretty strong, isn't it? Conversely, if he is God, those who say he was merely a good man or even the best man... The best of men are blasphemers. More serious still, if he is not God, then he is a blasphemer in the fullest sense of the word. If he is not God, he is not even good. Great quote. Here's another proof or another thing to ponder, point to ponder. Jesus forgave sins which only God can do. He said, did he really? Yeah. You remember when the paralytic was brought to Christ and um, his, his friends had to drop him down through the roof. Remember that? Apparently some of Tom's relatives were there because they had to know how to put the roof back together. <laughs> and what does Jesus say in, 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 um, in the scriptures? He says, when Jesus saw their faith, the faith of his friends, <laughs> he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are are forgiven you. What a strange way to heal somebody, right? Verse 6, And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. So in other words, they weren't saying anything out loud. They were just pondering this in their heart. Why does this man speak blasphemies? There's that word like this. And they were right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Mark 2, 5-7. Jesus forgave sins. An amazing thing was the declaration of that man's sins being forgiven caused him to be able to walk. As proof that his sins were what? And who can forgive sins but God? Here's, here's the last one. He received worship from his birth to his resurrection. And look at this. And he accepted it. That's important. He accepted that worship. He allowed himself to be worshipped. Remember, Jesus was without what? Is it a sin to worship anybody but God? Absolutely. It's like the first commandment. There's only one God. 
Number two, don't bow down to any other gods, right? So for Jesus, if he was not truly God, for him to receive this worship would have been sinful. And right when he starts off as a child, we see him being worshipped. Now, notice I didn't say a baby, but as a child. And we find this in the Gospel of Matthew. Here's what it says. And um, this is in Matthew 2.11. And when they, this is the Magi, the wise men, when they had come into the house, notice house, not, not, the, not the stable, because Jesus is older now, he's almost two. When they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and look at this, and they fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts of, what were the gifts, church? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Right. So here we see Jesus is worshipped as a child because those wise men knew who he was because they could read the stars and they knew the ancient prophecies very possibly taught to them from Daniel, Old Testament Daniel. Because we know these guys came from what was then Persia, which is today Iraq. And Daniel's last nation that he served was, were the kings of Persia. So I won't get into that, but it's very interesting. He received that worship. But then we fast forward to the end of his ministry, and he's getting ready to, to ascend back to the Father, and he gives his disciples, and I don't think it was just the 12 that were here. Well, it would have been 11 because Judas was dead. I think there were other disciples there as well. I think, I think the, the inference of the text states that. But in Matthew 28, 17, it says, it says this. So these disciples go up to this mountain where Jesus is, and the Bible says this, but when they saw Jesus, they what? They worshipped him, but some doubted. So even in their worship, there was some doubt, but they worshipped Jesus on that mountain before he was ascended, right at the very end of his, of his, his first walk on this earth. And he doesn't stop them. And just because he doubted, he didn't disqualify their worship. Anybody here glad for that? You ever had any doubts? So we see here that he received this worship. Let me give you this quote from one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis. This comes from a book he wrote called Mere Christianity. If you have not read that, do yourself a favor and read it. Make, make a point to read it in 2021. Here's what, here's what he says. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. Listen to this. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. That's all you got. He's a liar, a lunatic, or he is the Lord. He goes on to say, you must make your choice. Either this man was or is a son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us as an option. And he did not intend to. Wow. He's liar, lunatic, or Lord. You choose, 
But those are your only options. So let me, let me look at this last part. Why does this Redeemer, why did Jesus need to be truly God? And, and the Catechism, I think, does a pretty good job with it. And the first point here is that his obedience was perfect and effective. Now, when we say, when I say perfect, what's, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? When I say perfect, you think what? Exactly how it was intended. Exactly how it was intended. That's, that's actually really good, Ben. Without flaw, right? But most of the time, most of the time, this idea especially in scripture, when you see the word perfect, it means what's on the screen there. It means complete, which is, Ben, exactly how it was intended. God intended us to completely obey him, right? We had, a, we had that wonderful discussion in, in, in our D group this morning. And we came to the conclusion that none of us have completely, perfectly obeyed God all the time, every time. Right, uh, But Jesus did. His obedience was complete. And because it was complete obedience, it was effective. Effective for what? We're going to get to that. Uh, effective to become our obedience because it was complete and perfect. Look at this verse and jot them down. Romans 5, 19. Romans chapter 5 and verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience... Many were made sinners. Who was that one man? That's exactly right. Adam. Or if you want to pronounce it correctly in the Hebrew, it's Adam. But you probably don't know many people who speak Hebrew, so you're all right. <laughs> uh, yeah, Adam. And notice what it says. Has, by his disobedience, many were made sinners. Now notice it says many. Why doesn't it say all men were made sinners? Because there's one coming that there was a man who was not a sinner. Anybody happy about that? Yeah. See how accurate scripture is? But look at this. So Adam messed us all up. But look at this. So also, in other words, in the same way, by one man's, what's that word? Obedience, many will be made righteous. So we see here that through the obedience of Christ, we become righteous. Isn't that great? What a beautiful truth that is. And that's obedience to God's law. He kept the law perfectly. And it's also obedience to God's will. Do you, does anyone remember Jesus in a garden saying, Father, let this cup pass from... I don't want to... Uh-uh. I've seen people crucified. I don't want to go there. And it wasn't even the physical. I'm going to get into that in a minute. It was what was really behind that. He knew that he was going to literally become sin. Philippians 2.8. You ever heard of this one? Courtney, I think, has Philippians memorized by now, don't you, just about? And being found in appearance as a man, talking of Jesus, he humbled himself and became, what's that word? Obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You see, that's part of this complete obedience. Is his death on the cross. Not just the law of God. Oh, that had to be fulfilled and, and, and kept perfectly. 
But it's also the fact that he perfectly obeyed the Father in everything. Even when his human side shunned it and didn't want to go to what was coming. Mm. It's powerful. And then this one's always messed me up. Hebrews 5.8. Though he was a son, speaking of Christ, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, does that mean Jesus didn't know how to obey? No. That word there means he proved. He, in other words, he pulled it off. He didn't just talk about obedience. Listen, listen. He walked out obedience. And obedience has a price. Amen? Count the cost. Oh, what a cost his obedience had to it. But he kept it. And what a beautiful truth that is. And I'm going to make this little statement, and, and I'm not going to deal with it, but it's just for some of you. I want you to ponder it. Maybe we can have a discussion. And, and it may be in a form of a question. Did Jesus dip into his deity to live out his humanity? Or did he pull off this perfection the same way you and I can through the power of the Holy Spirit? Ponder that. It's a very interesting question. Here's the next one, and the last one is that his suffering, not only his, was his obedience complete and therefore effective, but look, his obedience cost him something. He suffered because of his obedience. His suffering was perfect. It was complete. In other words, he suffered enough. And we're going to talk about what that meant, which we really can't understand. And because he suffered enough, it was effective To satisfy the wrath of God against sin. What a powerful truth. Let's look at some scriptures about that. Luke 24, 46. Jot that down. Road to Emmaus. It's my favorite post-resurrection Jesus history. Conversation. Messiah moment. I love that. Go back. Do yourself a favor and go read this this week. It's phenomenal. So it's after his resurrection... We think it was actually that, that morning after he sees the women at the tomb and runs into them. All of a sudden he shows up and he's walking with these guys. These two disciples and they're talking about all the things that happened surrounding Jesus. And they thought he was it. He said, yeah, we were hopeful, but apparently this guy wasn't the Messiah. And the Bible says that Jesus, starting with Moses, in other words, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and the prophets, the whole Old Testament. Jesus walks them through the whole Old Testament and shows them. There's what it says. And what does he show them in verse 46? Then he said to them, thus it is written, in other words, in the Old Testament, and thus it was necessary for the Messiah, the Christ, to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. It was right there under their noses in their own Bible. And guess what, church? Shock of all shock, they missed it. By the way, do you wonder if there might be some things in this book that we're still missing today? They read right over it. How much of this book are we reading right over? And so Jesus says, hey, the Messiah must suffer. And he's going to rise from the dead. Look at verse uh, Acts 3.18. This is... In the early church, those early days of the church, 
But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, here they are, that the Christ, the Messiah, would suffer. And then Peter says this, he has thus fulfilled. In other words, he has met the suffering requirement. And again, he's talking to a bunch of Jewish people who expected a Messiah to come and make the enemies suffer and not suffer himself and become a political ruler. But no, he said, you guys, are, you guys missed it. The prophets say he had to suffer. And then this last one, Acts 17, 3, jot that down. Explaining and demonstrating that the Christ, the Messiah, had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, look at this, this is Jesus whom I preach to you as the Messiah. We say Christ, Christ and Messiah are synonymous terms. Peter would have actually said to them Messiah because the Jews would have known all the implications. And he's saying, this Jesus, he's the one I'm talking about. And he is this Messiah. And he had to suffer and then rise again from the dead. So why we look at the proofs of his deity or points to ponder there. We saw that his obedience was perfect and effective. And now that his suffering is perfect and effective. And here's the thought. Jesus had to be God to be able, able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. He had to be God. Who but God could bear God's own wrath against sin? Could like literally survive it? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain that here in a minute. Jesus had to be God to be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet, even though it cost him his, his life, and yet overcome death via the resurrection. All of this is connected perfectly and beautifully. But here's the reality. We don't come remotely close to understanding the weight of that statement. We really don't. And when you do, it'll blow your mind. It really will. Let's look at some verses. 1 John 4.10. 1 John 4.10. Here's what the scriptures say. In this is love. We were talking about love this morning. How do we define love? In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And here's the proof. And because He loved us, He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, I, I'm sure none of you used the word propitiation in a sentence this week. Probably did not show up in your vocabulary, right? It's a word that means satisfied. He was the satisfaction. He, the Son of God was the satisfaction for our sins. His suffering satisfied the wrath of Almighty God. Look at this next verse, Romans 3.25. Again, this word propitiation. Um, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood. Do you see it? Through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins. Speaking of the previous sins that were previously committed. This is, this is the unpacking of the whole Old Testament and, and, and how Christ's sacrifice fulfills all of the other sacrifices of lambs, bulls, goats, 
and birds. That all they did was push the sin forward until the Lamb of God could come and fully satisfy every drop of the wrath of Almighty God for sin. And then that sacrificial system comes to an end because it was just a shadow of the substance that was Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says this, And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, now notice what Jesus does, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You say, wait a minute, Paul. If, if Jesus absorbed all of the wrath of God for our sin, then what is this wrath to come? Well, notice what he says. He delivers us. That, book, that letter was written to the church. Those in Christ are delivered from the wrath of God. But the wrath of God is coming on those who are not in Christ. Did you all hear that? I know we live in some frustrating times right now. We look at this world and this world has lost its mind. And we pull a Habakkuk. God, are you watching? Do you, do you not see this? Where are you? God's judgment is coming. And every evil thing done in secret will be made apparent and open in the light. And God's wrath will fall on that. But oh, let me tell you, beloved, the wrath of God fell on the Lamb of God. And let me demonstrate that and then we'll close. How long was Jesus on that cross? Anyone remember? Six hours, that's right. Six hours. Can you count six? Hold up six, six fingers. And don't get technical with the thumbs. Somebody always does that. Six. You can do that. You can count that, right? We can even see six in our mind. All right. Here's the next question. How long is our punishment if we reject Christ? Can you count that? So wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're telling me that six hours of Christ on the cross pays for what? So look at that. You're saying that six hours on the cross, look at that, equals eternity in hell. Yeah, for everyone who will believe. For everyone who repents and puts faith in Christ. Yeah, exactly. Not just me. That'd be enough. For everyone who will bend the knee to King Jesus and admit that they've been a rebel and now they want to be a citizen of that kingdom. And they'll turn away from their sin and receive the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, our King. How can six hours equal eternity? Does anyone see a problem here? The only way that works, listen to me. Well, before I say that, let me ask you this. Why does it take eternity if I pay the price? We've got to ponder these things. Because I'm what? I'm a what? I'm a mortal soul. In other words, I can physically die, but I cannot eternally die. Okay? 
Here's a thought. Why does it take eternity? Because God's wrath is unabsorbable by a human spirit for all of eternity. Let's say that again. God's wrath is unabsorbable by a human spirit for all of eternity. That tells us several things. And this gets a little, this gets a, you're going to have to plug your brain in. But could, you, could we think about this for just a second? Imagine a mug that you drink your coffee out of. Right? Get an idea about what a mug looks like? And imagine I've got a gallon of water. Can that gallon of water fit in that mug? What's going to happen? Overflow. Here's, the, here, here's where that illustration breaks down. My mug, my human spirit, what God has in his wrath against sin is an eternal bottomless jug. And it never is quenched. You know what that tells me? What that should tell you? You know what an inference we should make from that? Listen to me, beloved. I want you to hear this. Your sin is way worse than you can understand. And God is more holy than you can fathom. And it is this holiness of God that makes sin so utterly sinful and wretched and treasonous that a human spirit cannot absorb the full penalty for it ever. And yet, six hours. How does that math work? How does that math work? That's it. Be, Jesus couldn't have just been a man. Because in six hours, he was able to absorb the entirety of the wrath of God for everyone who will believe and bear eternity in hell for millions in six hours. Here's the other thing that that tells me. We've all heard sermons on the horrors of crucifixion. How many of you, we all usually hear them around Easter, right? Hor um, the movie that was put out years ago, The Passion of the Christ, right? People saw that and were just horrified. And that even fell short, far short. Mel Gibson even said that they, he could not produce a movie that would accurately dis display crucifixion because the world wouldn't bear it. It would be an NC-17 rating. Um, Josephus said that a body nailed to a cross looked like a pile of human rubble. You couldn't even realize. It looked like a dog hanging there just as much as a human. It was just ripped flesh, meat hanging out. Oftentimes insides punching out through the visceral sac. Couldn't even make out the face. And we hear these sermons about the wretchedness of the physical. But I'm here to tell you, the physical wretchedness and suffering of Christ and crucifixion was, was there as a dim picture, very dim picture, 
of the spiritual suffering that was happening. That very God of very God, he who knew no sin, became sin. That's the horror of the cross. He, and, 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 and sinless God, not just taking our sins on himself, the Bible says, in himself. He identifies. He becomes our sin. And as the totality of sin in human existence, God looks at it and he targets his, the full brunt of his wrath, this bottomless vial of the roiling, broiling, angry wrath of God against sin, which is righteous, by the way. And he dumps it on Christ. And because Christ is not just the man, but he is truly God, he is able to absorb that which you and I cannot for all of eternity. Am I coming close to making any sense this morning? Do, do we must feel the weight of this and cause us to rejoice in God our Savior. So yes, our sin is far worse than we're comprehending. There's one more thought here. One more thought. That's the bright side of all of that. And it's simply this. When the Spirit of God opens our eyes and we see our sin for what it is, and then we see our Savior for what He did, and God grants us repentance and gives us the faith so that we can receive this gift of Christ. I have a question for you. How much wrath is left for you? How much? Not one drop. Because Jesus absorbed the unabsorbable. Because he was truly God hanging on that cross in my place. And there's nothing, there's nothing left for me. Now we can take this in an unholy direction. We talked about that in our group this morning. We can say, well, because of that, I can just go live like hell. Do whatever I want. And in a sense, you can go do whatever you want. But here's the reality. When God has arrested your spirit and given you a new man on the inside, what you want has changed. And you do. You go do whatever you want. But the difference is you want what God wants. And when you don't do that, we talked about that today and we all do that occasionally, it doesn't taste good anymore. But here's what God doesn't have for you. He doesn't have any more punishment. Because Jesus absorbed every last drop of the righteous wrath of God on that cross for every one of your sins. What does He have? A robe? a ring, sandals for your feet, and a calf that's not long for this world. Go look at the prodigal. That's what God's got for you because Jesus took it all. That doesn't give you license to sin. That gives you, that gives you liberty to live for God's glory. Amen? And because God knew we wouldn't believe that. And there's no way that any human being would accept that because it's too good to be true. Three days later, he resurrects his son. That's his stamp of approval that the sacrifice is accepted, the wrath is absorbed, and there is an open door 
to the Creator who can now be our Redeemer. And here's a little thought. This is for you for home and for later. Who raised Jesus from the dead? I would assert to you the Scriptures tell us that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. If you want to jot that down, the Father, we find in Acts 2.24, Jesus is released from the pangs of death. That, is, uh, that word is loosed in Hebrew, to, to loose an animal from a trap. And boy, aren't we trapped by death. The Son, John 2.19, and the Spirit, 1 Peter 3.18. This follows in our Colossians series. It's also important in this time of Advent that we know who Jesus is. And he's not this baby in a manger. He's a 33-year-old man who completely obeyed, who suffered completely and bore every last drop of the wrath of God for guilty sinners to be made saints and sons. Merry Christmas. Right? What is that? This is why Christ must be obeyed. This is why the gospel must be obeyed. Paul's words, not mine. Other Paul. Apostle Paul. We must obey the gospel of Christ. What does that mean? We must repent and believe. And then we must worship him. Does he not deserve to be worshipped as truly God? Jesus, God revealed. Very, very God of very God. May we rejoice in that today. Would you stand with me? Courtney's going to come with a group, and this is our new song. We're kind of, we'll sing it this week, next week, on Christmas Eve. I love it. I thought it was a joke when she sent it to me. Oh, come all you unfaithful. Sounds like a joke. But the only joke was on the devil when he thought he was putting an end to the Son of God, not realizing he was opening the gate of heaven. And if you're here today and you say, Pastor Paul, I, I, I don't know about what you said. I don't know if I've, I've ever really had that experience where, you know, I keep blaming everybody else for my sin, but I don't know if I've ever really owned it and, and, and admitted it. And really the whole thing with Jesus on the cross, that's just something we did as a kid and then we go to church and we feel good about it and go home. But none of that's really real. Maybe today is the day that God's opening your eyes. You see your sin and you feel the weight of it. And then you are now understanding what Christ did for you on that cross. This is the day to repent and put your faith in Jesus. Let's sing together. Oh, come, all you unfaithful. Weak and unstable, come, know you are not alone. Amen, church. Oh, come, barren and waiting ones, weary of praying, come, see what your God has done. Sing it. Christ is born.
for you, died for you, resurrected for you, and he's coming again. Amen, church? May we glorify his name. And if you don't know him today, may God open your heart and mind and eyes that you may learn of this glorious Savior. You may learn to walk in his love. Amen. Let's sing that doxology this morning as we leave this place with great joy. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.